0: I am grateful for those uh, songs this morning and those words. Uh, I am grateful for Monty's words uh, this morning about us being made in the image of God. And um, first chapter of the Bible, the preciousness of each person made in the very image of God. And when that is forgotten, there's been a lot of sins that have been committed against one another. Regardless of race or creed or anything, the image of God trumps everything else. That's what makes us precious. That's where we get our identity from. And then secondly, Monty's words about uh, the unborn. I... uh, I get I get in a good way crazy. you ever been a good way crazy? I am the father of adopted daughter, and this whole week of this stuff has crushed me thinking about just life without her. So we need to be a people about life, and then let God in His goodness, work out the details of providing. And we working hard to provide for those women and those children. So, praise God, we don't have to figure that out. He wrote it in his book, and we just have to do what he says. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, anyway, that felt like a mini-sermon, so here's sermon number two coming up. <laughs> if you are new with us this morning, uh, we are in the book of Isaiah, and uh, so welcome, Uh Certainly a different book, maybe, that you uh, have not maybe been in. Uh, but I also want to say, if you're new this morning, um, I want to say to our folks who are not new, look around and grab somebody. If they look new, grab them and say, are you new? And then welcome them to a church that teaches through the book of Isaiah. So turn with me, if you would, to chapter 9 in Isaiah. Uh, I want to say last week, I don't know if it was in the first service or second service, but I used the word, instead of saying omnipotence, God is omnipotent, I said he is omnipotent. (laughs) Okay, I said that. So, look, I've never claimed to be your intellectual pastor. (laughs) I am smarter than I sound but not by much I was made aware of that I know the difference so this morning I thought if I can't pronounce words I'll just make up words of my own and I'm doing it this morning with the title of this message called loving anger kindness that's the word I've made up and I think that gives us a great description of what Isaiah is speaking about here in chapter 9 8 through ten, four. On July 8, 1741, the great preacher and scholar, Jonathan Edwards, preached his most famous sermon to his congregation in the state of Connecticut. It was called, you may have heard of it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The point of the sermon, the big idea of the sermon was this, therefore let everyone that is Out of Christ, that doesn't know Christ, now awake and fly from the wrath that is surely to come. Edwards was saying to his congregation, it was loving for God to show his wrathful anger so that we might turn from his wrath and run to his kindness in Christ. That's where we get loving anger or loving anger, kindness. And when, those of us who know Christ, when we are protected under this impassable blood of Christ, this umbrella of the Lord Jesus, it is only because God has poured out his wrath on his son and we deserve that wrath. This is why the gospel, many say, both sobers us and makes our heart glad at the same time. In fact... This is a, I know we're broaching a subject of God's wrath this morning that's not typically discussed, but God is not only the most loving person in the Bible, he is also the angriest person in the Bible. And his anger is what makes him care for us. It means he cares for us. He gets involved despite the difference between his holiness and our sinfulness. His anger Plus, his holiness calls him to action, to get involved. It is the same as principle of a mama bear. You see a mom, a car has fallen on her child, and she rips that car in her anger. Someone breaks in my house at night, and I see that leg uh, slipping through the window at three in the morning, guess what? My anger to protect my family causes me to act. I don't sit back and go, y'all come on in, we'll have some coffee. No, you know what happens. Isaiah uses these strong words to show a complete picture of God that hopefully will eradicate our flippant opinions of him. We must, when we know God, we must know all of him. Isaiah in this passage this morning uses these kind of words. He uses anger, which means nose to nose. Think about that. He uses the word wrath, which means outburst. He uses the word fury, which means indignation. These are human words, but in God's anger, wrath, and fury... They remove all the negative human distortion of these words. God is not like us, and neither his wrath and anger and fury like ours. Ours are distorted most of the time, and are not good, and God's are not. Isaiah uses these words to describe the perfect passion that burns in the heart of God to defeat evil and bring you and I under his undeserving grace. That's what is behind his wrath. So this morning as we jump on this text, real quickly, Isaiah chapter 1 through 5 basically tells us to our faces, you and I and every man and woman made in the image of God has been broken. We are hot messes spiritually. We are in great need, Isaiah 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 6 tells us, God's grace overrules the failures of Isaiah personally. When Isaiah went before the throne of God and he saw the difference between himself and God, he said, man, I need grace. God's grace overruled Isaiah's own failures. From Isaiah 7 to 9, 7, God's grace overrules the failures of the people of Judah. And this morning we're going to see that God's grace overrules the affairs of the people of Israel. Before we get through this, really, there's uh, got another sermon or two after this. Uh, it's going to be not pretty. So, on your notes, it says God's wrathful verdict. Let me read for us, if I could, one verse, verse 12, 912, is repeated four times. And then I'll unpack it. Verse 12, chapter 9 of Isaiah. It says, the last phrase of that says for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand in his hand is stretched out still for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still in 4 verses in Isaiah 9:12, 9:17, 9:21 and 10:4 the same phrase the same phrase ends each stanza what we have here in Isaiah 9:8 through 10:4 is a poem if you would with four stanzas and the refrain of each poem that last line is the very same for this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out it's sort of like a hymn But instead of a hymn that honors God, it is a hymn that haunts the soul. And four times Isaiah repeats this frame. Now, as we know something about studying the scriptures, anytime we see something repeated, repeated terms, what does it make us do? Keep moving fast or slow down? Slow down. That's the point here. Isaiah repeats it four times, and it makes us go, "Uh uh-oh, he's making a point to us. He is making a point. And this verdict that God is going to bring judgment against the northern kingdom came, his anger came when the Syrians came in 722 B.C. and destroyed Israel. Now remember, just a picture, we have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, we have the southern kingdom that is called Judah, and that's where the Syrians struck first in the northern kingdom and destroyed it up in 722 BC. So what are these four statements, these four refrains in this poem, if you would, these four same statements in these four verses, what do they say? They underscore the certainty of God's wrath against the wickedness and sinfulness of his people. It says, God has made a decision. A verdict has been made. God's judgment, his wrath is going to come down on the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, through the Assyrians. The decision has been made. There's no going back now. As a reminder to us, God's wrath has a twofold purpose for his people. It is to condemn those, or not for his people, but for all people, to condemn those who ultimately reject him. And it purifies those who know and love him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. We do that ourselves. We send ourselves. In each of us, there is something growing up, which will of itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Now, I don't know if C.S. Lewis came first or Barney Fife came first, but I thought maybe that's where Barney got nipped in the bud, right? The, Lewis goes on to say, The matter is serious. Let us put ourselves in his hands at once. To summarize that, Lewis says, Wrath magnifies grace. God's wrath over sin and evil is what magnifies the grace you and I receive from him Ray Ortland put it another way and I put it in your notes he says God's wrath is his active resolute opposition to all evil his delight is spontaneous and intruistic to his being but his wrath is provoked by the f- by the fear right, right, the fears of his creatures. His love will never make peace with our evil. What we must understand is that God's wrath is perfect, no less perfect than the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. His wrath is not moody or vindictive. It is the solemn determination of a doctor cutting away the cancer that's killing his patient. And for God, the anger is personal, not detached and clinical. This doctor hates the cancer, meaning God, hates the cancer because he loves the carriers of the disease. And he will rid the universe of all their afflictions. And so we come to this morning, since Israel has not turned to God for safety, but instead, as we remember back to an alliance with Syria, And most of the nation of Israel has rejected the words of hope and salvation in chapter 9, 1 through 7. Remember the classic Christmas passage there that they will be born a virgin? They've rejected that, A, a, a great counselor of hope and salvation. So now what God does, he turns from an offer of hope and mercy, and he turns against the people And now Isaiah lists four sins or attitudes in which God's wrath will come. So we say, why God's wrath? Why God's verdict? Number one, it is self-sufficiency or no humility. Let me read with you, if I could, verses 8 through 12. 8 through 12 says, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. Now, Jacob is just another word for, uh, for the northern kingdom or for Israel. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim, that's another name for, the, for Israel, and the inhabitants of Samir, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and of the Philistines on the west devour Israel with an open mouth. And so in verse 8, in verse eight, it says, The Lord, the mighty sovereign king, he sends a word to the northern kingdom, a word that is against Israel or the northern kingdom. And how does the Lord send this word? Well, we know he sent it through Amos first, and then Hosea, and now uh, Isaiah. They were contemporaries in that day. So they were prophets to the northern kingdom. And this same message is coming. This, This word of destruction of God's wrath is coming to them, sent by three different prophets. And here we read in Isaiah. And it says there in the text, the word falls on Israel. Amos has sent it. Hosea has sent it. Now Isaiah sends it and he preaches this word, but it reminds us, it's like the parable of the sower that Jesus taught in the New Testament. He says that the word fell on the path. It fell on the rocky ground and it fell amongst the thorns and it did not produce its desired fruit. Isaiah is saying here, the word has fallen and God's The word was that God was coming with his wrath unless they turned and repented, but it fell on hard ears and hard hearts and it fell on the path and the rocky ground and it did not produce fruit. They did not turn. They did not listen. Verse 9 uses this phrase, and all the people will know. All the people will know. Is the totality of the whole nation, means all the people. They know what God has said and what God has been saying and is saying. They have heard the word and their response. Their response, look at verse 9c. They say, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. That was their response. Isaiah here identifies the root of all their sin, pride and arrogance of heart. They're saying, okay, the homes are going to be destroyed, the bricks are going to fall, our lives are going to be in ruin, but so what? We're fine. We're strong people. We'll build it back. We'll build it back even better than before. Their self-sufficiency, what they don't realize, that they can get it done, is what got them in trouble in the first place. There is no reflection and no humility. The root of all our sin is pride. C.S. Lewis has put it this way, pride is the national religion of hell. Ultimately, pride is saying this, I don't need God. We'll overcome anything that happens to us by our own works rather than looking to the Lord. William Ernest Henley, the famous writer, relays the core, I think, of each person's heart. The core of each human soul in his poem Invictus, written in the 1800s. The last refrain says, or statement in his poem says, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's what they're saying here in Isaiah. And it says in verse 12, for all this, his hand of anger is still stretched out. His wrath is still unquenched because the people will not turn to the Lord. They will not. They're unrepentant. I don't know if you've ever had this. uh, You probably haven't. You've had perfect children. I didn't. Um, We have imperfect parents. We have imperfect children. It's very clear. But I remember distinctly Jenna coming home one day from work and Jenna crying. And I said, in my kind husband kind of voice, what's wrong with you? You know, and she was crying because she had spanked Josh that day. And Josh just stood there stiff with this whatever look on his face. Look, it's all you got. (laughs) And obviously I said, you didn't spank him hard enough. She said, I know, but it's just hard to spank him hard enough. Like, he's tough. But the commentary was really on Josh. Jenna was learning to be a parent and learning to discipline. Uh, Just for for parentheses here, I stepped in at that point, and uh, the whatever look came off his face pretty clearly. (laughs) But he had this whatever look, and then you know as a parent, the discipline isn't done when there's a whatever look on a kid's face after a, and I'm talking about a, a good, I'm talking about any kind of abuse or anything like that, but a the done well, disciplined spanking. Israel has this whatever look on her face. That's all you got. I'm good. We'll make it better. So, the New Testament, you know, tells us God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Israel has ignored that truth, and so God's hand of wrath was still stretched out upon her. And so secondly, we see there was, no, there was self-turning. There was no repentance. Look with me in verses 9, 13 through 17. It says, the people did not turn to him. Who struck them, nor did they inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and otter man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. And has no compassion on the fatherless and the widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly or foolishness. It's really stunning. Verse 13. God has struck them. And they still refuse to turn to him. They are standing there with that whatever look on their face, stiff-jawed, still turning to themselves, still trusting themselves. They won't even inquire of the Lord, the text says. They won't even say, Lord, Lord, I come to you. I come to you to see what you might have to say about why all this is happening to us. Someone said, this is why us humans are really known By the objects of our seeking. And the objects of their seeking is themselves. Until the one who is struck is willing to embrace the one who struck him. In this kind of discipline situation, the job is not done with discipline. It is a great feeling, on the other hand, when you discipline or spank your child. And One of my greatest feelings as a father is when I would sit down with my child and I would explain what they did wrong. You know we've told you, if you do that, I'm going to have to discipline you or spank you. And you begin seeing their lip quiver and then nod their head and say, yeah, I did it, Dad. I was wrong. And I, then I want to say, it's okay. You won't do it anymore. And I know I can I made a promise, if you lie in our house, there was automatic spanking, and there was a lot of lying going on. It didn't last long, meaning start nipping that in the bud. But then you spank them, and they turn to you in tears, and you're in tears, and they say, I love you, Dad, and I say, I love you, Son. See, wrath melts and mercy triumphs. When there's this turning, there was still hope for Israel. But she stood there with this whatever look on. She did not embrace the one who struck her. The results of this self-turning is told told to us in verses 14 and 15, it says, they will cut off the head and tail, the powerful and the weak. That's what it means. The leaders and the poor will be disciplined, all of them. The prophets, it says, were the tell. The prophets had been telling lies. What did that mean in that context? Instead of speaking from God's word to the people, the prophets had been telling the leaders of the day what they wanted to hear and what the culture was saying. And so the leaders, based on the lies that the prophets told them, led the people astray. They were all guilty. In verse 17, it's maybe, (laughs) I don't know if I've ever seen this anywhere else in the scripture. Maybe, but I can't recall. The most shocking statement in the whole text, especially in light of what Monty talked about this morning. Listen to the statement. There will be no compassion on the fatherless and the widows. No compassion on the orphans and the widows. It is so strange that the God who makes his case over and over and over in the Old Testament and the New, that we are commanded to take care of orphans and widows. Here, it says there's no compassion for them in this generation. Does that stand out to you? Yes, we must let God be God. He gives us the reason. It sounds harsh. I know it does. But listen for the reason. It says in the text I just read, For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks foolishness. The word godless there means profane. It means no thought of God. Even the orphans, God is saying, even the orphans and the widows say they believe in Yahweh and the covenant, but they live like practical atheists. It says they are godless or without God. I want you to think about the context here. It's very important. These young men, it says the young men there will be no more. A sign of great vitality in a, in a culture. The orphans and the widows. They were raised in the covenant homes with the law. They heard the prophets. They were exposed to the sacrificial worship uh, system. They were raised with the Torah since birth. And Isaiah says they are without God. They live like a godless person. Shocking, but true. In our world today, I was thinking, just from my own experience and conversations and reading and seeing on the news, it seems like every person is born in their own mind an expert in theology, and everyone has an opinion about what God is like. But we need to know as Christians, if it doesn't match what God says about himself in its words, Its result is godless profanity. It is profane. It is a perversion that makes evil good and good evil. That's where humans take it. I'm reminded of Psalms 53. It says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So here in the refrain, once again, it says, so his hand of anger is stretched out still. And then the third way that it turns up is self-destruction. It gets really sad. Verses 9, 18 through 21. Let me read those to you quickly. Says for wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, they slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all his anger has not turned away, his hand is still stretched out among them. So we know from practical experience that self sufficiency and self turning leads to the next natural progression of what? Self destruction. Always has and always will. A people who are not humble and not repentant naturally are not unified. That's what's happening here verse 18. The pain sin brings, it's, the pain sin brings is simply the outworking of sin itself. It says in this passage the pain of sin is like a wildfire that consumes a life, a family, a church, an organization, and even a country. The people are so consumed with their own sin, they have been consumed by their own sin. To put it another way, once we are consumed with a sin, it is only a matter of time before we are consumed by that sin. Cognitively, mentally, you and I know Where this leads, but in our own depravity, we say, I'm above that. It won't happen to me. I'll jump off the edge before the wildfire of sin destroys my life. Man's dilemma since the fall in Genesis 3 has been to think I'm the lone exception. I can play with fire and not get burned. I've had those thoughts, and so have you. Isaiah is saying here, it's not true. It's not true. Verses 20 through 21 says, The self-destruction is unleashing itself on other humans. This is mind-blowing. This is civil, civil war at its worst because it's against blood. It uses the phrase, Ephraim devours Manasseh. Manasseh devours Ephraim. These were two of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. They were both sons of Joseph. The people from these tribes were the closest biologically. They were kinfolk, and they were killing and devouring one another. Self-destruction at its worst. I just know this, and so do you. Unity among brothers and sisters in Christ is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to him. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, even if they think and believe somewhat differently with you than you. John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I do not ask. This is his prayer. Open the heart of Jesus Christ himself. What does he pray for? He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I think applying the gospel to our relationships, to unity, requires First of all, that we must start with believing the best. We must start with believing the best. We, secondly, we must ask a lot of questions without thinking that we already know the answers we're going to get. And we must, the third thing is we must walk into that conversation not trusting ourselves as much as we do, knowing that we don't see as clearly as we think we do. And when that takes place, we can get a long way in a discussion and conversation that brings peace, maybe some disagreement, but some peace at the end. I would put it this way in light of who we are as a church, of people who are connected upward with God via the gospel must be connected withward with each other despite their differences. So we have self-sufficiency, self-turning, self-destruction, and now Isaiah gets to the motive, (laughs) self-gain. There's no generosity, no generosity. Verses 1 through four, says, woe to those who decree in degrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar to whom would you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For his hand is reached out still in his anger. Isaiah says here, uses the word woe. It says shame on you is what it means. To write and execute a wicked and corrupt legal system. Isaiah is speaking here to the legislators and to the leaders, and to the administrators of this culture, men who are in power. Isaiah really saying, look, you already have a civil code book of how you're to treat one another and do by each other in the law of Moses. But you write your own laws, and then he exposes them in verse 2, and he says the reason is these unjust leaders' goal to writing these unjust laws as personal gain. Folks, we have seen that in our country since the start of our country. Verse three says, Isaiah asked the judges and lawmakers, what will they do? Here's the question Isaiah asks: What will you do on that day when you stand before the great lawgiver himself and the righteous judge? That's the question. Isaiah tells him the wealth that you, the unjust have acquired from their press will do you no good on that day when you stand before God. He then paints this picture. He says, they will huddle as prisoners of war or be tossed into a heap of dead bodies. And this is exactly what took place when the Syrians destroyed Israel in 722 B.C. I remember as a young kid, I heard Muhammad Ali, the great Muhammad Ali, say one time, you can run, but you cannot hide. Now, what Muhammad Ali meant by that was there's only a limited amount of room in this ring, in that canvas for you to get away from me. And at some point, my fist is going to bust you upside the head, right? God said here, look, you can run, but you cannot hide. My wrath will catch up to you, even if it's in the day that you stand before me. Your unjust self gain. Your motive will be exposed. Why you do what you do. (laughs) Justice is a big deal to God. Injustice to men and women whom we live on this earth with is a big deal to God. We must do right when everyone else says it's wrong. That's what God has called us to. Regardless, regardless, whether it's men and women, or black and white, red and green, different economic status. No, we do right as God's people. One of the many reasons, as Anna spoke a little bit off, and Monty spoke a little bit off, why as a church we are so committed. So committed from a heart place with our time, talent, truth, and treasure to give our lives away to the poor, to those who are mistreated, to the prisoners, to the parents of the, uh, to the spouses and children of the prisoners, to single moms, to children in need. It's why we have invested those time, talents, truth, and treasure in ministries like Men of Valor, the prison ministry, stepping stones to just last week, moms in here with their kids, homeless mothers sleeping in their car till they come in our building and lay down and are fed and and kids are played with. Like that's, that's God's heart. We don't say, we don't look at those women and go, well, if you just work, we don't say that. We don't say, What's wrong with you? Look, there, most of us in this room financially are about one small mistake away from being where they are. Adoption, adoption and orphan care, embrace grace which again is invested in mothers with unwanted pregnancies, Portico Pregnancy Center, to the children at Windshape and more because a people who are connected upward to God must be connected outward with the mission. That's justice. So here's how I want to wrap up this morning. The Bible keeps telling us two things over and over and over. God will never accept human pride defined by the word Self. He won't do it. He'll root it out like a cancer doctor cutting out cancer. The word self-sufficiency, self-turning, self-destruction, and self-gain, he will not allow it. His righteous anger will come after it. And secondly, the Bible keeps telling us God saved his children from themselves so they could live a life defined by God, not by themselves. A God sufficiency, a God turning, a God restoration, and a God gain. This wrath of God that we see in this passage was applied to the back of the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Himself took our wrath that we deserved so you and I might live a Godward life, not under, under judgment as we deserve, but under grace. So once again, God's grace triumphs our failures. I want you to take a minute this morning, if you're new here, we do this every week, to take a minute to ask the question, so what? Meaning, what's the one thing I need to apply, the next right step for me in my own life? And as I thought about that, you have four things. Look, when I, when I was studying this passage, I looked at self-sufficiency. And I felt like that's where the Lord was convicting me. Yesterday, as I opened the scripture to continue to finish up my sermon, I just started working without even praying, and I was so convicted after about 30 minutes, and I just bowed my head and said, Lord, I need you, (laughs) I need you to understand this passage and communicate it clearly. So, you pick one of these and ask what the next right step is for you in terms of where you are at. So take a minute to do just that.